This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The number of people in Colorado without legal immigration status is about 200,000, according to the Pew Research Center. People who are in the country illegally came under great scrutiny during President-elect Donald Trump's campaign. And his message resonates with many of his supporters. Now that he's won, these immigrants' lives stand to change. That includes children. So later, we'll hear about concerns Colorado schools are fielding from students. First, two attorneys from the Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network join me. They help young immigrants obtain legal status. Ashley Harrington and Liz Zimbrana, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. President Obama started a controversial program that has given temporary legal status to about three quarters of a million young immigrants who are in the country illegally. This is called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. Liz, you work with applicants. What exactly does having this status do for a young immigrant? So individuals with DACA uh, have the opportunity to work legally um, over a period of two years. Um, They have the opportunity to uh, have protection uh, from deportation from the country. Um, It accords them the opportunity to obtain a social security number. Um, For many of my clients, it accords them the ability to fund their college education, um, to provide for their families. And the understanding is that you will have pursued or will pursue an education, correct? Uh, Yes, yes. They have to be enrolled in school or have graduated from school. And the vast majority of my clients want to continue their education and go off to college. Again, deferred action for childhood arrivals. So what's deferred here is deportation, correct? That's correct. And as we said, this is for young people. They have to have been under 16 when they came to the U.S. and still be under about 35 now. How many DACA recipients are there in Colorado, Ashley? Um, The United States Citizenship and Immigration Services uh, estimates that there are just shy of 30,000 DACA recipients in Colorado. Just shy of 30,000. And any sense of how many pending DACA applications there are, people who are waiting to find out if they will get this temporary legal status now before President Obama leaves office? Yes, there are approximately 4,000 applications Uh, including both initial applications, people applying for DACA for the first time, as well as renewal applications, people who who already have their initial grant of DACA and are up for renewal of that two-year period that Liz explained. Okay. So there can be renewals under this. The application goes to the Department of Homeland Security, correct? Correct. Yeah. Let's step back for just a moment. Liz, what what is the idea behind DACA, the philosophy behind why you would afford people who are in the country illegally a deferred action. Well, these are individuals for our, for all intents and purposes, Americans. They have resided here um, since they were children. They've attended our schools. Um, they've grown up in this country. Um, for many, um, English may be their first language. Um, they they are accustomed to the culture here. The fact is, no one knows exactly what President-elect Trump will do with this particular program when he becomes president. But he has said that one of his first actions will be to roll back President Obama's executive orders, including on immigration. He's also getting advice on immigration from Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who sued to try to stop DACA. Given the uncertainty and the signals that the president-elect is sending, what is your role? Are you advising people not to seek DACA status anymore? No, 
we are not advising people not to apply. Our role as immigration attorneys is really never to tell people what to do, but to explain to them what the risks are of applying, what their options are, and allow them to make the decision whether or not to apply. So we explain to them um, all the risks inherent in submitting an initial application for the first time or in trying to renew their status, uh, renew their DACA at this time, and then they can make the decision whether or not they want to take those risks. What do you mean by risks? So um, for those who would would be considering submitting an initial DACA application for the very first time, um, not only are they risking that their application is not very likely to be decided um, until after the new administration takes over. Because the, so, these are decided, what, in, in months, not weeks? Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, so they may be putting a lot of effort into putting their applications together and sending them off um, and not getting... Uh, not getting their DACA approved. They also have to submit a filing fee of $465, um, which they could just lose. Um, but for those who are submitting an initial DACA application, there is an additional risk just that they are putting their information into the system, if you will, for the first time and exposing themselves to the Department of Homeland Security for the first time. So information that might have been used under the Obama administration to grant them deferred action could be used in a different administration in a different way. Correct. What then are people tending to decide when you offer them this insight? Um, generally, my uh, renewal clients have been uh, choosing to go forward. Um, my initial clients are um, taking a lot more time to make that decision um, and weighing the pros and cons, t- uh, conferring with their families and then deciding um, in most instances not to go forward. What do you understand the range of possibilities to be that a Trump administration could do with a program like DACA? Could you run through those with us, Ashley? Sure. So, um He has, as you said, promised to roll back uh, DACA, but we don't really know, first of all, whether he will do that. And if he does, what does that really mean? Does that mean that he will um, stop accepting new applications, but applications that were filed before he took office could still uh, be approved? Right. Is there some retroactivity here or not? Right. Does it mean that he'll just put a full stop to the processing of all applications, even if they were pending before he took office? Or does it mean that he could actually take some action to try to revoke um, uh, DACA grants that are already in place? So in order to qualify for DACA, you need to have resided in the U.S. continuously since 2007, though some conservatives believe that these childhood arrivals could be security risks and that they warrant more scrutiny. They point out that not all of the applicants are interviewed in person. Very few of them, they say. What is the application process like, just briefly? So anyone that that is submitting an application, including for DACA, to the Department of Homeland Security goes through um, a fingerprinting process and an extensive background check. Um, So they absolutely um, are scrutinized and um, not only checked for what they put on their application about any uh, criminal history, but also um, run through those fingerprint uh, checks to make sure that they don't actually have any criminal history. Would you add anything? Um, yeah, I mean, beyond the eligibility, proving the initial eligibility, they um, do undergo background checks. And in some instances, if there are any concerns, um, they do have the option to schedule an interview um, with the applicant. But that is not the, in the majority of cases, correct? Mm, no. Yeah. 
Who are these recipients? Will you tell us a little bit about the clients you work with, Lish? Sure. So uh, most of my clients are in high school, um, ranging from the ages of 15 through um, the ages of 20. Um, Most of my clients do attend uh, public high schools here in Denver, um, throughout the state of Colorado. Um, I also do have some clients who are uh, in college right now, paying their way through college. Um, I work with um, small business owners uh, who are DACA recipients as well. It's a wide range. Small business owners mm-hmm. uh, who are on the younger side, obviously, yes, yes. but are past their education yes. and have gone into starting businesses. You know, I'll say a similar type of uncertainty hung over this program back in 2012 when President Obama was up for re-election. It was unclear what would happen to DACA after the election. And so some immigrants were concerned that if they gave their information to the Department of Homeland Security, they could be putting their families at risk. Do you have to put in your parents' information if you apply for DACA? I wonder if this is a concern that people bring to the table. That uh, is, are you, are you revealing just yourself or are you revealing your family? So the application is for the individual. Um, you do not have to include um, any information about your family. Um, you just have to include the information that's pertinent to your own application. Um, Again, it's not clear what a Trump administration would do specifically with DACA, though he has pledged to repeal Obama's executive orders that created this temporary legal status for immigrants. This is what we know uh, in terms of what he said most recently. This is from an interview Sunday on 60 Minutes. What about the pledge to deport millions and millions of undocumented immigrants? What we are going to do is get the People that are criminal and have criminal records, gang members, drug dealers, we have a lot of these people, probably two million, it could even be three million. We're getting them out of our country or we're going to incarcerate, but we're getting them out of our country. They're here illegally. After the border is secured and after everything gets normalized, we're going to make a determination on the people that you're talking about who are terrific people. Are you open to the idea that with Trump and a new Republican Congress, that immigration reform might actually pass, uh, which most people agree is needed? Well, of course, we're open to the idea and we would be very supportive of of the idea. Um, but I think uh, national experts on this um, are not very hopeful at this point that we will have comprehensive immigration reform under a Trump administration and a Republican Congress. What, what do you base that claim on? Um, organizations like the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, um, who are experts um, on this nationally, um, have come out and and said basically that um, because of the anti-immigrant campaign rhetoric and uh, the lack of support for um, immigrant communities, that it's very unlikely that we'll have a comprehensive immigration reform under this administration. Although changes to the immigration system do appear on his 100-day plan. I want to put this into some context um, because President Obama has deported more people than any other president before him. He has largely focused on deporting immigrants with criminal records and who recently crossed the border. Donald Trump during the campaign suggested he may enlist a a deportation force that would be more aggressive in identifying people in the U.S. illegally. They would still get a hearing, though. And so I wonder what the effect will be potentially on the courts. Colorado already has the highest immigration court wait time in the country, 
more than a thousand days is the wait time. Is Colorado prepared for what could be a big batch of new cases? Um, looking at the system as as you do as as ones who work with it, what would you say, Liz? Um, I absolutely do not think that they're prepared. Um, I I think that the the court system is is overloaded as as it is, um, and additional cases they they are not they don't have the resources to handle that at the moment. So there would need to be more personnel to make that happen. Would you agree with that, Ashley? Absolutely, yes. In Colorado, we already have a backlog um, of approximately ten thousand individuals who are already in um, active pending removal proceedings. Um, so adding more people to that um, would certainly increase the backlog. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you so much. Ashley Harrington and Liz Imbrana are attorneys with the Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network. They help young immigrants seek legal status in the U.S. And we talked about the future of President Obama's executive order benefiting young immigrants in light of the election of Donald Trump. Teachers around Colorado have been fielding lots of questions from students about what uh, President-elect Donald Trump will mean for their future. And CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine has that story. About five years ago, Denver teacher Rebecca Del Toro felt she needed to prepare to help her students process traumatic events. She says social media means more information gets out about school shootings, police shootings, and sometimes hate speech. Like whenever something that happens that can re-traumatize that community, I need to be prepared. I need to respond. I need to address it. The plans go out the window and I need to address this, right? Many teachers in Denver knew the day after the election would be intense. Three quarters of Denver students are minorities, some undocumented, some Muslim. President-elect Donald Trump has promised mass deportations of undocumented immigrants and a ban on Muslims from entering the U.S. At Kip Montbello College Prep, teacher Alejandro Fuentes says the day after the election, a kid suddenly ran into an open locker. It's all like Donald Trump one. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be at school. I'm not going to be paying attention anyway. What's the point of being here when this was allowed to happen? After the election, Denver Public Schools deployed teams to various schools. Some held hour-long assemblies to let students process their emotions. Alan Smith is the Associate Chief for Culture, Equity, and Leadership Teams at DPS. He says the district will explain to undocumented families that students will still be educated under federal law. Just also training for empathy with our teachers because students are going to be carrying this emotion. But I don't want people to panic. So it's important that we give our teachers training on how to help our students and even our families not make rash decisions off of emotion. The district says it will closely monitor attendance and dropout rates going forward, which can spike, particularly among undocumented students who may feel a sense of hopelessness. Meanwhile, in Boulder, where minorities make up just 20 percent of the district, officials hoped a memo to teachers to guide them on post-election discussions would help. But Boulder High freshman Alejandra Floripe said none of her teachers talked about the election. Teachers avoided the problem. They acted like nothing happened. No one was there to talk to us about it or to just help us out because it's hard for us as minorities. 
she and her friends wanted to talk about their fears, so she came to a support rally in Denver. Our loved ones are going to be gone if they don't have documents, if they don't have papers. Our families are being taken away. Those fears, Denver teacher Rebecca Del Toro tried to address the day after the election. At that same rally, the special education teacher at Collegiate Prep Academy explained that day. First, she grouped the students in a circle. They started with a meditation to build respect. Then each student said one word about how they felt. Then the questions poured in. What powers does a president have on his own? Which need to get congressional approval? Of course they asked me, like, can he just deport people? Can he just put a ban on Muslims entering the country? Like, one of my students asked about abortion access. And I think a lot of it was just this idea of, is it true? Is it true that he can just, like, sign away our rights, like that we have worked for throughout history. She and her students talked about the Bill of Rights and the different branches of government. And some of the questions I didn't know the answers to. So then I just like wrote them down and took them to the civics teacher and was like, can you be sure to address these? Because I think that you probably know better than I do. Meantime, at Kip Montbello in Denver, sixth grade math teacher Alejandro Fuentes busied himself trying to answer students' questions about what a Trump presidency means for those who are Muslim. He tried to reassure them. But then... My students could tell that something was wrong with me because there were just tears in my eyes from the get-go. And students kept coming up to me and asking me, what's wrong, Mr. Fuentes? Like, what's wrong? It came time to lay his heavy burden on them. He told them he is undocumented. He works under DACA, having come to the U.S. when he was five. Fuentes says it will be hard for students to focus in the weeks ahead, and hard for him until President-elect Donald Trump takes office and starts to make policy. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. And Colorado Matters continues after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Your brain has an autopilot function that directs you even when you're not aware. That's an analogy that Shankar Vedantam likes to use to describe your unconscious mind. Shankar is NPR's social science correspondent, and he hosts a podcast called Hidden Brain. Shankar is here to share a special episode of his podcast. It's about a man who was living in Denver when his brain experienced something rare, even miraculous. But Vedantam doesn't really believe in miracles. He calls himself a card-carrying rationalist. And Shankar, welcome to the program. Good to be here, Ryan. Thank you for having me. You call this episode Stroke of Genius. And before we hear it, why was it a story you wanted to tell? It's one of the more amazing stories I've ever heard, Ryan. Uh, A man is playing a game near a swimming pool. He jumps over the pool, crashes into the water, doesn't realize he's diving into the shallow end of the pool. He hits his head very badly at the bottom of the pool, and instead of this being a tragedy, it turns out to be an extraordinary stroke of good luck because something wonderful happens to him. Okay, well, let's listen to your story. So um, let's hear Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. As amazing as it (laughs) sounds, I probably can't play that. And I can explain why as we start chatting about it, because... This is Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. A savant is defined as someone who does not have normal intelligence, but possesses unusual mental abilities. My name is Derek Amato. I am 49 years old. I currently live in Virginia. But Derek is an unusual case. 
He's said to have something called a quiet savant syndrome. It's left him with this incredible ability to compose and play piano. We'll talk about what that means, but let's back up a minute. I grew up a typical kid. I was, I was an extremely aggressive athlete, so that was kind of my thing. I was a baseball, football, basketball player. You were a jock. I was a jock, yeah. Um, I had musical interest from very early on. My, my grandmother was a organ player for the church. So, I mean, I, I was around it. I, I, would, I remember Sunday mornings going, sitting next to her on the, on the bench, and even though I didn't understand, you know, what she was doing or how to play the instrument, I loved to sit with her and sing, and, and it, was just my, it was my comfort zone as a child. When I go to church, I get to sit and watch her play the organ and sing. At his mother's insistence, Derek dabbled in music. He joined the school band, played drums, tinkered around with a guitar, formed a rock band with friends, but he did not take formal lessons or get any musical training. Okay, so that's the setup. What happens to Derek in 2006 is both terrifying and fascinating. He was in South Dakota visiting friends and family. I got together with some friends, and we were going to have a little barbecue party at the pool, an indoor pool. And we were horsing around, and this, this young man walked in. He must have been about 14, 12, 14, and he had this little miniature football with him. So, of course, we started throwing the football at each other, and I started. I, I thought I could just run on the side of the pool and then dive over the water and catch the football in the air. And the idea was you would catch it and then fall into the pool. Yeah, yeah. just catch it in the air and then fall into the water and... So I went running on the side of the pool, and I and I remember I remember running alongside the pool. I remember even diving in to catch the ball, and I I knew I was diving towards a shallow end. I was very aware, and I miscalculated the depth, obviously, and I hit the upper left side of my face, and that's that's all I I remember. It was like an explosion, and you know we've all most of us have had a head trauma when we were a kid or hit our head and. It's that sickening feeling you get when it's like, oh, no, I, I know something. I just did something extremely wrong, and this isn't right. And I knew I had hurt myself. Diagnosis was a massive concussion. And what was the treatment? Relax. Stay quiet. Lay in bed for a few days. I spent the night at the hospital, and the next morning they sent me home. I went home, and I, I slept. I slept for five days, basically. And then you get up and do what? We're sitting at the table, and, and, and I said, well, I feel pretty darn good. I, I, I know I had an accident, and I'm not sure what happened. And I said, well, I'm going to pack, and, and, and I think I can go back to Denver in a couple days. So I called Rick, and I said, why don't you come over and get me? We'll, we'll, we'll say goodbyes, and um, I'll be on my way in a couple days. And so we went over to his apartment, and we're, we were just hanging out. And he had this tiny keyboard, just, just this little piece of junk in the corner. And it was just on the stand, dusty, and not sure if it had ever been played. And I kept staring at it as we were talking. And we were just sitting talking like just like this. And I kept looking at it and looking at it, curious. I was like, not sure why I was drawn to it. And I finally just walked over to it. And I thought, I'll just hit a few of these keys. I, I turn it on and see what happens. I had no clue. And I sat down, and my fingers just went crazy. My fingers were like somebody just, I don't know, Rick said the ghost of Beethoven jumped into my body. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. I went crazy. 
and just played and played. And it, and it wasn't like I was just picking away. What did you play? I played, I think it was more of the... more of a classical structure to it and I and I sat there and did this for I don't know five six hours without stopping and we just I I remember looking at him and, and there was tears rolling down his face I mean he's a Christian kid he's he's a pretty emotional guy he's 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 a sweet sweet man and he just you know he didn't know what to think as because I mean I've known him since we were kids and he'd never seen me play a piano so he's like What's going on? I'm not sure what's going on. We're listening to a special episode of the Hidden Brain podcast from NPR, hosted by Shankar Vedantam. After a break, how this man from Colorado, Derek Amato, convinced his mom that he'd become a piano savant. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, a special episode of the Hidden Brain podcast hosted by NPR's Shankar Vedantam about a Colorado man who dove into a swimming pool, hit his head, and became a piano savant. Right now, Derek Amato is taking us back to the day after the accident when he discovered his new gift. He was using a keyboard at a friend's house. I didn't want to stop playing because I was like, well, what if I stop and then, and then this doesn't happen tomorrow morning? I mean, this is kind of cool. I don't, I mean, it doesn't happen every day. You just sit down and start playing a piano. So I think this is kind of different. Let's, let's just stay here for a while. It must have been 2 o'clock in the morning and I was exhausted. My brain was flying, still was racing. And um, so he took me back to my mother's house. We had to call it a day. I was, you know, beat up and... I went to bed, and the next morning I woke up, and I was, I was paranoid, I was nervous, I was scared. I was like, how am I going to tell my mother, the person that knows me best on this planet? I just hit my head, and I'm a little whacked out. How am I going to tell her that I just discovered that I know how to play the piano fairly well to a person that's known me my entire life, 40 years? So I said, well, I don't know any other way than to take her to a music store. So I said, we had a cup of coffee, and I said, let's run to the music store real quick. And she said, what do you want to buy? And I said, nothing. I said, I just want to show you something real fast. I wouldn't tell her. We get to the music store. We, we walk in. The salesman says, I don't know, like, you know, he can I help you? He wants to sell me something. And I said, if you show me how to get this piano, this digital piano on. That's all I need. And then give me just 10 minutes. So he turns it on, shows me how to turn the darn thing on. I tell my mother to sit down next to me. What did you play? I don't quite remember what I played that time, but I was doing um, more of a... I I, I wanted to sing to her for some reason because it was such an emotional thing. And 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 I was going into like... just started to kind of chord this and she was looking at me like whoa 
when did this transpire? She, I mean, she had all kinds of questions right away. And then I just kind of went nuts and started going crazy just to show her, well, look at this, look at this. And she, she started crying. She, she didn't really say much. It was a very quiet drive home. As you're telling me this, Derek, I almost have the feeling that you're pulling my leg right now because it seems this is not possible. This is just simply not <laughs> – it could not have happened. You know, well, if I would have had my way, I'm not sure if I would have ended up a piano player. I kind of wanted to be a baseball player and I work, <laughs> or work in the fighting business. So I don't know. I, I, and, and you know what? I invite skepticism because I think when something so beautiful and profound happens, we have to, we have to question. At what stage did you stop questioning – that you had a skill. I'm assuming that you were skeptical as well. I mean, you told me that when you went home the first night, you were afraid that it was going to be a one-day skill and it was mm-hmm. going to be gone by the next morning. Mm-hmm. At what point did you stop questioning it and say, this is actually a new skill that I have? You know, I, I think you kind of grow into that, getting comfortable with accepting what's transpired in your life. I definitely didn't want it to go away. In the first year or two, it was a little, you know, like I I would wake up thinking, I need to get to a piano. I need to make sure it's still here. And then as time went on, I started to understand that, well, the doctors tell me it can go away as fast as it came. And acquired musical savant syndrome, that means you've acquired a gift. And I got to that point where I, I just accepted the fact that I'm going to enjoy every, every second of this because if I wake up tomorrow and it's gone, I want to be able to say that I, I did the best I could to display it to a society looking in at my life and say, I've been inspired by this or the human potential is amazing or the brain is just a magnificent you know, organ that we don't know anything about. And I think it became that comfort in knowing that I'm going to enjoy it every single second. And if it stays, beautiful. If it goes away, then I guess I'll go get a job. Have you spoken to a neurologist who is skeptical about what's happening to you? I think they're all skeptical the moment they walk in the door. I mean, I feel skeptical. I'm sorry. I know that Absolutely. You're a, I know that you're a nice guy. And you oh, seem I, like a trustworthy person. Right, right. I expect you to be. But I have the feeling that you're just, this is just one big giant prank. Well, that's because I, I'm still, I, I'm articulate and I, and I still have most of my marbles. So I can, I can display the story in a different way than, let's say, the guy that hit his head and woke up a piano player, but he's not all here. If I ask you to play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star for me, could you try that? I don't think I can play it. I tried to do Happy Birthday for a person the other day, and I couldn't figure it out. Um, no. Answer's no. <laughs> Start with C. Is that this one right here? first note then wait where oh so it's all up and down go 
gosh darn it. I, I, see, I can see it now. I mean, that's kind of in there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the first note, though. But it's sort of an interesting thing, isn't it? Which is like, you, you, you don't go up, you don't see someone who says, you know, I, I can throw a fastball at, I don't know, 140 miles an hour, but I don't know how to reach out and shake your hand. And to me, you're displaying musical ability at one end of the spectrum, whereas playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, I can do that. Right. And you, you find it hard. And I find it just really difficult to understand how you can be so good at the extreme end right. without knowing the basics. I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm, I'm on your side. I, I'm fascinated with that, too. Does it disturb you? Does it worry you that you have this ability? No. I mean, I'm a Christian kid, so I think, I'm, I think this is where God wants me. I think this has already been penned out, my story. I, 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 how else? I mean, I have to live with this every day, so if I sit and beat my own mind up about, is this nature versus nurture and nature and all this nonsense... But, I mean, I've talked to the best doctors, the smartest doctors on this planet. And they all got a different little input. And they all got something different to say about it. Most all of them are skeptic when I walk in. And most all of them when I walk out are right here with me. Have any of them suggested treatments? Yes. Yes. They, um, Dr. Reeves at the, at the Mayo Clinic, when I was filming with the Discovery Channel, he was fascinated with this as well. And he said... The best way for him to explain it is like a roller coaster. If you get on a roller coaster that doesn't stop, sooner or later it's going to get tiring. So maybe we suggest slowing down the stimulant, the, the overstimulated brain. You're firing these neurons at a pace that's unheard of. So let's try some seizure medication to shut those down, right? I don't know, understand how it works, but I do know it slows down the firing of the neurons. Oh, why, why would I want to take synthetic drugs and, and mask something possibly that I'm enjoying to the point where I, I, don't, want, I don't want it to slow down or go away? I'll take the hyperness and the ADHD and the OCD and all that garbage that comes with this maybe. What if it has a consequence where you are burning your brain at a level that is not healthy for you. I mean, so for example, let's Then say, I guess I go down on fire, baby. And that's, <laughs> and that's how the story ends, and I'm good with that. You're still the guy who would die for the sw- football over the swimming pool. Yeah. Coming up, we'll find out more about acquired savant syndrome. They are so motivated. They're, they are in love with what they're doing. It's almost like an extension of who they are. Also, I'm going to challenge Derek to play the studio wall. I see on this wall, I see these squares. Some of them have different depths, so the full squares almost feel like a whole note to me. Keep listening. It'll make more sense soon. On Colorado Matters from CPR News.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, NPR's social science correspondent, Shankar Vedantam, presents an episode of his Hidden Brain podcast about the invisible forces that shape how we understand the world. Shankar is telling us about Derek Amato, a man from Colorado who became a musical savant after hitting his head hard on a swimming pool. Here again is Shankar. I'm a card-carrying rationalist. When surprising things happen, I don't call them miracles. I look for explanations. Derek's very charming. His story is amazing. But I found myself asking over and over how something like this could happen. That's when I came by a couple of researchers who've spent years studying people who've suddenly acquired savant-like gifts. Daryl Treffert is a psychiatrist in Wisconsin. He studied Derek. And I must say that in his case, I'm, you know, was as startled as you uh, about the fact that he went to the piano and knew where to place his fingers and so forth. The the reason that I'm inclined to accept that is because I've seen that in in some of these other cases, um, uh, although probably not quite as abrupt as he, but, and to me at least, um, that having seen a lot of savants, when I see some of these acquired savant cases, it it is um, really quite jarring. I don't know if you remember what Derek said about his injury. He leaped across the swimming pool for the football, and when he came down hard, he heard what sounded like an explosion. And I miscalculated the depth, obviously, and I hit the upper left side of my face. The left side of his face. That's an important clue. In general, in savant syndrome itself, whether congenital or acquired, uh, there tends to be a more left-brain injury with right brain compensation and the, the right brain areas or of ability that seem to emerge have to do with art, music, and, uh, and mathematics, actually. Art, music, and math, all skills that involve pattern recognition. At the University of Pennsylvania, cognitive psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman said, think about it. These are the skills you might imagine are built into the architecture of the brain. In other words, we might come hardwired for certain kinds of activities. This is the insight that helped me see that Derek might not be pulling a prank. Most of us, in fact, effortlessly learn things. Just like Derek says he never took classes to learn piano, you probably didn't take formal lessons to learn your first language. The truth is that a lot of things we learn in life were not done deliberately. Um, when we were very young and, you know, the ages of two and four, we learned a, a huge amount of uh, new words and learned the grammatical structure of of, the, of our language automatically without – we didn't, like, sit down when we were two years old and say, right, I'm going to learn all the grammatical syntax and what it all means. And so we have these structures that help us uh, learn – If you look at it this way, most people have skills that might seem savant-like to a visitor from another planet. We learn these skills effortlessly. In fact, it doesn't even feel like learning. It feels like fun. What makes savants unique, in other words, is not that their brains do amazing things. All brains do amazing things. What's different is that they're demonstrating effortless learning in domains that usually call for sustained effort. Now, I'm not going to tell you you should go out and bang your head against the floor of a swimming pool to learn to play the piano. The vast majority of concussions don't produce an inner genius. They have terrible outcomes. But Derek's story does suggest, even to this card-carrying rationalist, that we have worlds within us, gifts, 
that we do not realize that we possess. When I look at these savants, what I see at the core that I think is, is, offers a lot of inspiration to humanity is that they are so motivated, they, they are in love with what they're doing. It's almost like an extension of who they are. To me, that, that is, offers a lot of hope um, or inspires me that um, perhaps all of us can, can find that vehicle that really allows us to sing. As Derek was playing the piano in NPR Studio One, I noticed there was a wall behind him. It had soundproofing, hollow wooden cubes, each of a different depth. Derek had told me that when he plays, he sees squares floating by him. So I asked him to turn around, look at the wall, and tell me what he saw. I see on this wall, I see these squares. Some of them have different depths, so the full squares almost feel like a whole note to me. I asked Derek to play the wall for me. So I, would, I, see, I see low because I see low notes because all the depth. You see the dark ones that are filled in all the way? Mm-hmm. They stand out, so I see low notes like... middle boxes. See where I'm at now in those middle boxes? So those are... And that's a whole different... Now we're getting into a whole different thing. Now I'm getting excited. <laughs> Got any more walls to look at? So you were just playing the wall? That's what you were playing? I was you were playing, playing the music what on the wall? I, so I started here. Okay, so imagine that's the music bar. Yeah. So I played the top one. I'll do it again. I'll do it precisely exactly like I saw it. changes to this bar we move down now and now we're going to move down to the next bar of music and i see then we'll go back up to the top and then we can make it jazz And I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. And these walls could be dangerous because I wouldn't want to sleep at all <laughs> if I had walls like this in my house. <laughs> are, are you telling me that you have never played the piece of music you just played for me in your life before? No. And, and, and this third row might even be a whole different composition. That's what I'm saying. The depths of those blocks, those middle rows and those circles in the middle, that's what these are to me. That's what... Those are rolling patterns to me. And then those chunky ones on the top, that's where I see that. And it just changes like that suddenly. And then I moved out of the next one, and it's a whole different flow. That's Derek Amato playing the wall in NPR Studio One. And Shankar Vedantam is with us now. We heard that incredulity in your voice. Um, you know, could this story really be true? Having told Derek's story, do you walk away from it believing it? 
I have to say there's a part of me that is still skeptical of Derek's story. And I say this uh, with all sincerity because I actually think that Derek Amato is a really nice guy. And, you know, I have every reason to believe that he's telling us the truth. But there are so many elements of the story that just seems impossible to me. Uh, and as someone who has himself tried to learn a musical instrument and failed at it miserably, you know, the idea that someone can hit their head uh, as a result of an accident and then be able to play a musical instrument seems almost unfair to me. Uh, you know, it takes years and years of practice before someone sounds good on any kind of instrument. And the idea that all you have to do is jump into a swimming pool and hit the side of your head and then you're able to play the piano. I mean, how does that seem fair to all the people who are putting in years and years of practice? <laughs> so so I, th I think there's a part of me that's not just skeptical of the story, but that's actually a little outraged by the story. How, how can it be that in a fair and just world that something like this could, <laughs> could happen to someone else? Oh, you're, you're actually actually jealous. That's what's happening here. Um, I think that probably sums it up pretty well, yes. So having done this podcast for more than a year, what has most surprised you about the things we think we have control over but don't? The thing that I think is most fascinating is, is the mismatch between how we see our own minds and how our minds actually work. And, and what I mean by that is when I look at my own mind, I feel like everything that happens in my mind, I am consciously aware of, that I feel like my mind is this, you know, brightly lit stage, and I can see everything that's happening in it. I know why I feel what I feel, and I know why I think what I think, and I know why I perceive what I perceive. And really, the underlying idea or the underlying theme of the entire Hidden Brain project is that so much of what happens in the mind is really hidden from us, that much of it happens behind this veil, behind this curtain. What makes this fascinating, of course, is that it's very hard to know the difference between seeing reality for what it is and seeing what looks like reality, but is only a version of reality that has been filtered through the lens of our biases. Well, I'd like to talk about an issue that's dominated the past year plus. Um, you're looking at why it's important for Americans to like their president. Likeability has been a big topic in this particular campaign. How, how is that affecting the health of the U.S. democracy, do you think? Well, I think it has all manner of different implications because on the one hand, yes, we actually want presidents to be likable, but that actually has some implications for who gets to run for president and who's successful at running because we tend to find some people more likable than other people. Uh, and when you think about it, the presidency is actually not a popularity contest or it shouldn't be a popularity contest. When you think about what a person has to do in the Oval Office for four years after you elect them, very little of it has to do with being, you know, photogenic or being able to say the right things before the camera or to be, you know, very quick in terms of your uh, response in a, in a presidential debate. And yet those are the criteria we often use in evaluating who should be in the office. Uh, it's also the case that I think that even though most of us recognize that we are never actually probably going to sit down and have a beer with the president, at some level we evaluate the candidates for president as if they are people who are going to be our personal friends. And when you think about it, this is a profoundly irrational way to go about picking somebody who's going to be a leader, somebody who's going to be a manager, somebody whose job is to bring different government departments to work together. And the question is, why is it that we apply these criteria that might be better applied to saying, who do I want to go and see a ball game with? Who do I want to have lunch with? To the topic of who do I want to be president? Hmm. So in that way, someone's uh, unlikability, dis dislikability could be an attribute? 
Yeah, I mean, just think about it. Let's say, for example, hypothetically, you had somebody who's an extraordinarily good manager, somebody who has wonderful vision about where the country is going and how it should be managed, somebody who is really, really good at seeing through the complexities of moving legislation through Congress, somebody who's very good in a crisis, somebody who's really good dealing with emergencies, but the person is just a little bit of a jerk. Let's say the person isn't very likable. Now, is that person a good person to be president? I think that person would find it very, very, very hard to get elected president, even though all of the things that I've just described to you are what a president does. And there's this mismatch between saying we want the president to be a highly likable, popular, beloved person, and we want the president to do all these kinds of very, very complicated tasks that have nothing to do with likability. There's clearly some kind of an irony or mismatch or paradox there. Thanks so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Shankar Vedantam is NPR's social science correspondent and host of The Hidden Brain, the episode you heard about a man from Colorado who became a piano savant, was originally podcast February 23rd. You heard it on Colorado Matters from CPR News. With managing producer Rachel Estabrook, I'm Ryan Warner.